0: Welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. This Sunday, we're kicking off the Advent season, and today's conversation is called The Constant of Waiting. A question for you to start with today is, what are you anticipating this Advent season? Enjoy. This week begins Advent, which is this season of anticipation, and it's a season of waiting. And one of the things that we're going to talk about today is how waiting is a constant. Waiting is a constant thing that we deal with as human beings, but we are Americans, my friend. Americans. And we do not like waiting. And for most of us in this room, we are millennials, my friends. We definitely don't like waiting. And so I think Advent has something to teach us about the human journey, that what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about the Bible is it's not helpful if we're just talking about a story of a person who was born 2,000 years ago. What we need is a story that tells us something about our humanity now. And the power of Advent and the power of Christmas is that in every season and in every year and in every place in humanity, there is something new about the nativity and birth story of Jesus uh, that gives us hope and something to hold on to. So we're going to talk about some things. What we've got to talk about is $1.5 billion. Again, if you have it, let me know. <laughs> We're going to talk about BCE, you know, before the common era. I think that's what uh, the the academy is saying now, right? Am I allowed to say BC or something like that? Great, wonderful. Uh, We're going to talk about millennials. Am I right? Am I right? Um, How babies are made. Uh, I probably need like a whiteboard up here, so that's going to be helpful. That'll be uh, coming soon. And then yoga and Bob Wilson. So, Advent, my friends. I was very interested uh, a few months ago when the lottery was happening, right? The super lotto was going to be at like $1.5 billion. Everyone see this, right? And how many people that I talked to who all of a sudden, for some random reason, believe I'm probably going to win this thing, right? And how many of you were that person? Thank you for the four of you that admitted this, right? I was planning all of my houses, what kind of jet I was going to buy, like you name it. And I I find it fascinating that when something like this happens culturally, what we can throw it off to is maybe this idea that that we want something that we know is not plausible. But what it's really saying, I think the subtext about what's happening in humanity, is that there's a need for hope in our lives. That really, I have an economic insecurity. Really, I want my life to change. And as far-fetched as winning the $1.5 billion lottery sounds, I would still rather hope in that than have no hope at all. Because I want my life maybe to look different now than it was yesterday. And I think that hope is this thing that is only needed when things are out of control. The, The fruit of control is never hope. Control in our context, and the world that we live in, is you don't need hope because you have everything figured out. You're the one that is controlling the world. You're the one that is navigating the situation that you're at in life. And most of us would rather have control. And then what sometimes we find is that what we actually are in need of is we're desperately in need of hope. And hope says, I'm out of control. I actually don't have this all figured out. That the hardest job that I'll ever have is to be human. And I need a lot of help with this thing. And that hope is this thing that says, I need something outside of myself to give me something that I cannot provide on my own. And that as we enter into the Advent season, the thing that we don't need to enter into is more control of our lives. It's to say, I have this thing all figured out. What we don't need more of in the Advent season is probably more parties, more busyness, more things going on. Probably what we all need more of in an Advent season is a posture of anticipation and of waiting and of saying, I desperately need to hope that honestly, for my life to be its best, I need something outside of me to work. Uh, We believe in Santa Claus for those reasons, right? We believe in all kinds of mythologies for those reasons, that we want something bigger than us to change our lives. And the invitation of the Christmas season is that God comes to earth, that God puts on human flesh, that we live in the incarnation, not to um, try to prove that Jesus was somehow God, but the incarnation is more importantly, this reality that God shows us the very best of what it means to be human. And God shows us the very best and fullness of who God is. And it's that, that intersection is where we fully live as human beings. When we're completely exposed to the divine when we can touch it and taste it and see it, and when our full human experience can come alive. And when we're doing that, then we're always hoping, and we're always anticipating, and we're always waiting because we realize I could never do this thing on my own. The biblical narrative is filled with this, by the way. We talk about this in here all of the time, that one of the challenges for many people, particularly Americans who have grown up in powerful Protestant Western churches or Catholic churches or evangelical churches is that most of the time that we've read the Gospels or we've read the Bible or the way that we understand God is through a lens and a context of power. That even though we might not believe that we come from a powerful group, that we're still Americans and we're still sitting in this room right now. And so even the way that we've been told about Jesus is through that lens. And yet the entire Bible, not some of it, not parts of it, not even most of it, the entire Bible was written by a group of people who desperately needed hope because they had no power. Right. It's even some of the earliest stories are are there for a reason to declare this reality of I need something bigger and beyond myself. The story of Abraham is that right. It's a story about this really old couple who's barren and they have no kids. And in an ancient Jewish context, that means you don't have the ability to pass on eternal life. You don't have the ability to pass on your heritage so that you'll be seen in your kids and and then you'll be seen in your grandkids and your great-grandkids and all the way on. And so it's basically saying that death has come to you and to your entire family. There's a desperate need for hope, a desperate need for something more. There's a group of people who are powerless. And it's amazing that out of that story of barrenness that the rest of the Bible emerges. And the rest of the Bible is not a story about victory. It's not a story about winners. It's not a story about people who continue to be powerful. It's constantly a story about how difficult it is to do this human journey. And that's not even like a depressing thing. I'm not here to like get you down on a Sunday morning talking about Christmas, right? It's a reality check of it's just difficult to be human. And for most human beings on the planet throughout most of history, figuring out how to be human and just figuring out how to survive has often been a difficult thing. And what we have in our world and our culture is all of these facades and all of these illusions that we put up that sometimes prevent us from seeing the challenge of our journey. And not the challenge in like a negative way, that it has to be all bad and horrible and filled with brokenness, but just the challenge in the reality of what it takes to evolve and to grow and to transform and to mature. And so throughout the rest of the biblical narrative, we see these groups of people who are desperately in need of God because they are the powerless, And not the powerful. The Exodus story is a story about what? It's a group of powerless people who are being dominated by an empire. And that God comes to the rescue because there is need for hope. That they cannot control their own situation on their own. And so that God comes in and rescues them and frees them and delivers them. And then the rest of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible and the biblical narrative goes on that God rescues these people. But then in every season in the life of the people of Israel, there are more needs for rescuing. There are more needs for salvation. And there are more times where they need God to come in and to do God's part to provide hope. I don't know. I think about this a lot when I think about Christmas or when I think about Easter is that so God comes into the world. Or even the Easter story, God comes into the world. We we encounter the incarnation, the crucifixion and the resurrection happen. But then what happens after the resurrection? Is the world magically changed? No. Everything looks exactly the same as it did three days before when Jesus went into that tomb. Jesus is born into the world. Does Caesar all of a sudden declare that everyone will have universal health care? No. Right? Right? Are all of a sudden the top 1% in the Roman Empire just handing out cash to all of the poor people? No. Are all of the powerful people all of a sudden saying, I want to do right by humanity now and I want to provide for all of the needs of the broken and the hurting and the widows and the orphans? No. But what the birth of Jesus, what the death and resurrection, what the life of Jesus show us, what it invites us into is an opportunity to be transformed by a new perspective. By an opportunity to hope. That even in the midst of the difficulty of being human, we can have a hope to be transformed and to deal with this thing called humanity and this thing called life in a different way. And so throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it is the people of God living in travail, figuring this out, hoping as a new superpower would come in and as a new superpower would go out. In a lot of ways, it's saying we're always anticipating that the moment that um, Egypt was taken away, you thought to yourself, well, now it's all gonna be figured out and we're not gonna have any problems again. And then what's the very next story? They're in a desert for 40 years. You're like, come on, (laughs) right? If I just had the job, everything would work out. And then you get the job. Then you're like, oh, come on, right? If I was just in this relationship, then I know I would be satisfied. And then you're like, come on, right? (laughs) I think about this all the time, right? I, my wife has a fine wine, by the way, all right? So she's like, gets better. If you Come on, come on. If you know Krista, you're like, it's true, right? I'm like a cheap PBR beer, right? I aged out like eight years ago, you know what I'm saying? It is, I'm getting worse fast here. And she probably wakes up some morning, she's like, come on, you know? She's like, I've had three kids. Look at me, this guy, I don't know what he's... What he's doing over here. The point is, is that sometimes we get the thing that we want. Sometimes we're rescued and we're liberated and we think, oh, now now everything's going to be solved. Now my life's going to be better. And then you realize, no, I just have different problems. And I have different anxieties. And I have different anticipations. And that's the reality of Christmas, is Jesus might be birthed in you. Something new might wonderfully happen in you this Christmas season. You might experience God in a whole new way. But wherever you go, there you are. That's the trick of it. That's not a hopeless statement. That's an incredibly hopeful statement. That's there you, wherever you go, there you are, and that God can transform and change you where you're at. That Caesar may not magically care for all of the widows, the orphans, and the aliens, right? That Donald Trump might not wake up on December 26th and open the borders to all people. Probably not going to happen, by the way, right? But that doesn't mean that what's being transformed inside of us can't help change the world. That we don't have a place in it. Because the problems will still be there. The difficulties will still arise. That doesn't mean that I can't have a different perspective within it. And the people of Israel were waiting forever for this Messiah to come, for this Christ to be born, for something new to be birthed into the world, right? After Egypt, guess who came? The Assyrians in 722. Everyone's favorite date BCE, my friends, right? (laughs) And they destroyed the whole northern empire of Israel. Then after the Assyrians left, then here comes the Babylonians, 586 B.C., in case you were wondering, right? Then after the Babylonians in 521, here comes the Persians. And then 333, here comes Alexander the Great. And then eventually the Romans are going to come. The point is that season after season after season, you're praying out to God and you're saying, if this thing would just change, my life would be completely different. And maybe that's not the prayer. Maybe the prayer is, how can my life be transformed and changed with these things going on? Because I might get to the point where I'm completely liberated and realize, but I'm still here. And those are difficult words, I know, in, in a lot of different ways. And I, it's not lost on me that those are difficult words coming from a straight, white, powerful man standing in front of you. And that there are many aspects of my life that there are people in this room that I do not understand. I have not embodied your narrative. But I know that there are Caesars and that there are pharaohs and that there are empires and systems in all of our lives, both externally in the systems that control this world and internally in each of our lives that lord over us. And I know from my own experiences as somebody who is an addict in a 12-step group, that there's never been a day that I've arrived There's never been a day that's come up where everything magically went away and I wasn't an addict anymore. There's never been a day that's gone by where my family magically got fixed, where I had a relationship again with my mom and dad, where I didn't have regret about the unfaithfulness and the adultery that I put onto my wife. I don't know what the word is I'm looking for there. That we all live with our things is the point and it doesn't magically go away. What does happen is that we transform and that we have a new perspective and that God is gonna birth something new within us and that through each season of the scriptures and the faithful people of God that they knew this. It's only till very recently that we believed that after 40 days of purpose, my friend, this will all be gone, right? Or if you just do these five healthy habits, then you shall never have these issues again. And if you just do 30 minutes a day of these sit-ups, these love handles, well, they didn't go away, I'll tell you that. I also drink too many IPAs, so I think that's part of the problem. (laughs) And so the biblical narrative offers us a new world. So listen to this from Luke. It goes like this. Or Jeremiah. We go back to Jeremiah. They're the same things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days, at that time, we will I make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. And then from Luke. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. By the way, these are the actual passages that are in the liturgical calendar for Advent, right? I grew up in the evangelical world. We never read any of this stuff. We already had the laser show going and Christmas was ready. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) We didn't have time for suffering. We were the megachurch, my friends. And so I love that these passages are there, that they're preparing you, right, for anticipation, that there's real needs in the world is what it's saying. And because real needs are in the world, we need something beyond ourselves, On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring of the tossing sea. People will faint from terror. This is in the Bible, people, right? Um, Apprehensive of what is coming on the world for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And at that time, they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up and lift your hearts because your redemption is drawing near. It's really important that these are in the first week of Advent. The first week of Advent is saying this. There is a need. And you don't have to look far, but only into our own lives or into the external around us since we can all nod and say, yes, there's real need. Yes, we're all anticipating something. Yes, sometimes the world feels more daunting than anything I can imagine. Where Western Christianity has gone bad over the last few years is that we want to take everything literally, that we don't know how to take things seriously. We talk about that all the time in here. So instead of these passages just reminding us that There's always going to be crazy things happening. This is a part of what it means to be the human experience. Now all of a sudden you have pastors up there who are like, well, if you just carry the one and you look at these dates and when Russia comes, this is when the rapture is going to happen. That's not helpful, right? That's not what these passages are for. These passages are to remind us of the universal reality of the human experience. That there will always be times where there's perplexity in the world, right? There will always be times when there's things going on that seem bigger than ourselves. And every season of our life, we will need to call out to God and say, we want something new to be birthed. We want things to be reclaimed and we want things to be renewed. This is the biblical narrative and this is where Advent starts. But here's the really important thing about the first week of Advent. There's been no conception yet. There's been no angels who have come to talk to Mary yet, right? There have been none of these other things that we traditionally think of in the nativity and the Christmas story. And it's very intentional that it doesn't start there. And for us, particularly as Americans, particularly as millennials, it teaches us to wait in anticipation. We want to get to the birth of a baby unless you're pregnant, right? Then you're very thankful for those nine months probably because no one wants to like wake up one day and you're like, and here is a baby, right? <laughs> what you need is some time to prepare. What you need is some time to reflect. What you need is some time to process. And the biblical narrative and the gospel is always inviting us into that reality. That yes, God wants to birth something new in each and every one of us. But in order for God to birth something new, we have to be patient in the process. That maturation, right? maturity, transformation, healing does not come overnight. And that is difficult for many of us in this room because we live in a world where things happen overnight. There was things 30 years ago that if you wanted to make out with somebody, you had to get ready and go to a bar and put on your best stuff, right? In anticipation of that, right? No one here has ever wanted to make out with somebody apparently, okay, great. (laughs) Not today, my friends. You just swipe right and you can make out, right? (laughs) And I joke about that, but it's true. So much of our society and our technology and the way that we're wired is that instantaneously in this moment, I can get whatever I want. And so Christmas and Advent and the waiting and the anticipation, right, is all a saying of be patient, slow down, let the process take place. The best thing in life, take time. And maybe that as you're in the process, the new thing will be birth. And what you will realize is that nothing changed around you but everything changed within you. And maybe that's where the real gift is at. Maybe that's where the real hope is found. And so my hopes for us in this Advent season, as we anticipate, as we realize that waiting is a constant part of every season of our life, is that we would enter into some practices. The practices I hope that you don't enter into are more busyness, that I hope that you're not participating in more control, and figuring more things out in this holiday season. The things that I hope we move into are the things that Advent teaches us, what hope teaches us, which is surrender, and I believe mystery. Surrender is saying, I don't have it all figured out. I need something beyond me to change my life. How do you force yourself to surrender? You don't. It's something that you have to keep coming back to. It's something that you have to keep tending. It's something that you have to continually be mindful of. That every time that you are standing in that line at the grocery store and then it's been one and a half seconds and you can't handle the anxiety of not looking at your phone, it's that you put it back in your pocket. I say all of that because I'm so guilty of these things, right? I find all the time I'm so anxious about the world. I don't even know that I'm doing these things anymore. I always have the radio on. I always have Netflix on. I always have my phone out. I'm always trying to keep, I need more words. And what surrender teaches me is no, I don't need all of that. Sometimes what I need is just to be still with myself, right? This is why all of these passages, there's this spaciousness about them. There's this reality that there is something in the waiting, in the in-between time before anything is even conceived. Sometimes those are the best places to really process who we are and what we have going on. I don't know what that process is for you to surrender. For some of you, maybe it's taking a hike. Would you commit to taking a hike this Advent season? For some of you, maybe it's for the first hour of your day, you're not going to pick up your phone. Maybe it's that. Maybe for some of you to practice in anticipation, it's, I'm finally going to sign up for the therapist. I'm finally going to reach out to that spiritual director. I'm going to make a call to my best friend every afternoon at 4.30. I don't know what that thing is that's going to force you to pause. But in that practice, just like in yoga, that when you do yoga and you practice breathing... You're not practicing breathing for that moment so that you can get in a child's pose better. You're practicing yoga and that breathing so that when you're on the freeway and that person cuts you off or when you go home for the holidays and have to spend five more days with mom and dad, my friend, (laughs) then in those moments, you can now breathe in a different way. So what is that practice that will lead you to surrender? And then what is the practice that will lead you to mystery or awe or surprise this Advent season? That This is a season filled with it. Be around kids this Advent season. Like, go to Nordstrom's and stand at the mall and just watch the line with Santa Claus, right? That sounds creepy, actually. (laughs) If you don't have kids. And you may never be allowed within 200 yards of them again. But you get the point. Be open to the mystery that part of surrender and part of hoping is that you can't control everything. And sometimes surprise comes in the most random places, and sometimes surprise happens in the most God-forsaken places, which is the entire story about the birth and nativity of Jesus. That it's not Israel that you imagine the coming of a new king. It's not Israel that you imagine that salvation and redemption is coming for the entire world. That's the God-forsaken place, and that's where the counterintuitive message of the gospel always turns it upside down. And so Bob Wilson, and we'll close with this, after all of the fires in paradise and thousands of people are without their homes, hundreds of people have been killed and thousands of people are still left missing. There's a real estate agent who's made a lot of money over his lifetime in San Diego who said, man, there's a school of 850 kids, 108 teachers up in paradise who they're not going to have school for a long time because of the fires. And so he said, I'm going to write a check for $1,000 to every single student that goes there and for every single teacher for every single janitor, for every single bus driver, and I'm just going to drive up to paradise right now and give everyone $1,000. And his story was, I thought about giving them gift cards and I thought about doing these other things. But then I realized, nah, that part of, part of surprise and part of mystery is I'm going to let them decide whatever they want to do. But everything's been taken from them and how can I just give them a little bit of hope? And that that kind of generosity exists in the universe should blow your mind. That all the time I hear people talk about this idea of, well, what about the problem of evil? What about these things going on? Well, what about the problem of good? What about a generative grace and generosity that just exudes itself in the, inner, in the universe all of the time? What about the fact, right, that you're breathing right now? What about the fact that you have consciousness? What about the fact that you can even sit in this room and that you are not alone, even though you may feel it? What about that reality, that kind of goodness, that kind of grace? Be open to surprise. And maybe what you'll realize is that all of your external circumstances will change but internally, maybe you'll have eyes to see and ears to see that this grace was already around you. So we're gonna end with this question, find those same three or four people. What do you want to surrender to this Advent season? Enjoy.